Is there anything you would have done differently? We reported a true story. Our colleague Brian Williams is back in Kuwait City tonight after a close call on the skies over Iraq. Controversial Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh and questions about Kavanaugh's drinking in the past. Sean Hannity, come on up, Sean Hannity. Today, Andrew Cuomo is having a moment. Hi, I'm Chris Steyerwald. And I'm Eliana Johnson. Welcome to Angstein Wretched, where we break down what's going wrong and what's going right, in fact, with the American news media. And listeners, gentle listeners, you may notice, you may have noticed that Eliana Johnson has a sultry rasp to her voice, a la Kathleen Turner. And that is why we are coming to you a day late this week, because our friend, my, my friend, your friend and co-host was ill. How are you feeling? I'm feeling much better. Much better now. Well, I'm glad you're- Much better now. So yes, that is why we are coming podcasting a day late. Our apologies for that. Well, I think you sound fabulous. Thank you. I'm channeling RFK Jr. (laughs) Well, let's let's not get carried away. Let's not get carried away. Chris, we got on our front page- Israel, Israel, Israel. A little little Biden in politics. But we we have to talk about the alleged oops Israeli bombing of this hospital in Gaza that virtually every major news outlet, I got push alerts from the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, they all attributed this bombing to Israel because the Palestinian Ministry of Health said that Israel had bombed a hospital in Gaza, killing hundreds of people. They put the number at 500. And that was everywhere in the media until hours later, Israel came out and said that their intelligence showed actually this was a a misfired rocket from the terrorist group Islamic Jihad. And the next day, American intelligence agencies also said that their intelligence corroborated that. Uh, Israel, of course, had audio of Islamic Jihad terrorists talking to each other. Um, They had surveillance footage of where the rocket came from, showing that it was in Gaza. Um, But not before there were articles printed in all the major major newspapers and television segments uh, run that prompted embassies, protests at our embassies around the world, at Israel's embassies around the world. Israel evacuated its diplomats from Turkey, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What do you make of this? Well, you seldom get to see an example of how powerful biases can collide to very damaging effects. And there were two biases at work in the erroneous reporting on this story. So you have the one, which is, I would say, a minority in newsrooms, center-left, mainstream newsrooms, that of people who are anti-Israel. I don't think that's the majority of people, but it's certainly a voice. And as we'll talk about later in the show, there is also, this is a maybe a minority, but it's it's capable of considerable, bringing considerable pressure to bear. So you have that one group. But then you have the other bias, and that is the bias in favor of conflict and the narrative. 
And the narrative that took shape around this larger story after the Hamas attack on Israel was almost immediately, Israel will overreact. How long until Israel overreacts? And that narrative, which is indeed imbued with a, a negative view of Israel, but also just with the idea, look, I'm not saying that media outlets are rooting for a wider expansion of this war, but we always have to remember that the bias in the news media is for news and stuff to cover and bigger conflict. And the idea that this conflict could turn into a regional conflagration is, would be a huge story. So when you have the... What are they? What are they? The health ministry of the the, the Palestinian Ministry of of Health, which is you know Hamas, because right. we know how that government operates. So when you have when you have this easily discreditable group making this claim, and it aligns with both the ideological biases of some in the newsroom, but also the overall bias for conflict and what this and the. the the narrative that is being pushed every day, and I'm not saying there's no chance that the war will widen, but the narrative that's being pushed every day about a larger regional conflagration, and they just went for it. And you seldom get to see such a clear encapsulation of the phenomenon, but that's what happens when biases collide. I have a third, and we're going to get to some of the coverage. There's a third general approach that that we see in newsrooms, which is equating the two actors of this conflict as moral and political equals, which is because they're fighting a war against each other, which is, well, Israel and its government spokesman said X, but Hamas or the Palestinian health ministry or whatever government entity on the other side said the other things. And these things carry equal weight. They're equally truthy. And we see that constantly. So you know what? Palestinian Ministry of Health said X, we can report that and run with it without asking any other questions, because that carries the same weight as statements from a democratically elected government in a democracy. And they, there was a real comeuppance for that this week. And by the way, nobody has issued corrections or own mistakes. And we're going to talk a little bit about the eliding of this embarrassing error. But I wanted to direct readers to Michael Oren's new Substack, where he has a post on this, having served. He was, of course, the Israeli ambassador to the U.S., and he notes in a post the Palestinian, the Palestinian Ministry of Health is, of course, Hamas. Calling it a health ministry is a perverse misnomer. It's Orwellian. No sane leader or journalist would ever consider the Al-Qaeda or ISIS Ministry of Health a reliable or even quotable source. No reasonable person would miss the irony of a terrorist organization dedicated to genocide calling itself a health ministry, and no moral person would ever conflate Hamas with health unless the health was that of the Palestinians sinisterly threatened by the Jews. And when it, uh, this was akin to, you know, when the Twin Towers fell on 9-11, as if the New York Times had said, well... You know, Al Qaeda says X and the U.S. and the U.S. government says Y. And who can really know? You know, who could really get to the bottom of this? Noah Rothman also had a very good piece on this, which we will include in the show notes that he at National Review, where he goes over this and and talks about how preposterous all of that is. And 
you know, it's I the I am a little sympathetic. The New York Times did an a almost mea culpa. They were uh, nearly they 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 got in the same zip code as taking responsibility, but the headline <laughs> headline on the on the piece was beyond parody, which was the, the New York Times. Yeah, their attempt at cleanup was after hospital blast. Headlines shift with changing claims. I love. It's got it all for the New York Times. It's got a dependent clause. It's got passive voice. It is just mwah, per, it perfect. It takes perfect. Several paragraphs, even in this piece, to get to the truth. And I wanted to read a little bit from it to see how weaselly the language is. Uh, the Times writes: the shifting coverage about a deadly explosion at a hospital in Gaza highlighted the difficulties of reporting on a fast-moving war in which few journalists remain on the ground while claims fly freely on social media. No. No. (laughs) No, that's not what happened. The first reports of a strike at the Ali Arab Hospital in Gaza City came early Tuesday afternoon Eastern time. A spokeswoman for the Gaza Health Ministry said an Israeli airstrike had caused the explosion, killing at least 200 people. The news changed quickly over a couple hours. Many Western news organizations, including the New York Times, reported the Gazan claims in prominent headlines and articles. They adjusted the coverage after the Israeli military issued a statement urging caution about the Gazan allegation. The news organization then reported the Israeli military's assertion that the blast was the result of a failed rocket launched by Palestinian Islamic Jihad, an armed group aligned with Hamas. And then the best part was a Times spokesman said, we report what we know as we learn it. We apply rigor and care to what we publish, explicitly citing sources and noting when a piece of news is breaking and likely to be updated. I mean, they're just they're doing their best, Chris. Well, this this would be like, you know, if you know Donald Trump says Joe Biden is an international criminal, right? If you're talking about rival accusations or rival claims. It could be noteworthy that one person accused another person of doing something, right? But of course, with Donald Trump or Hamas, you would say, ah, well, I don't, I, don't know. I don't know how seriously we're going to take your claims. And then do we want to make the claim the first headline? So it seems obvious. Now, hindsight is twenty twenty, and I don't know if I, would have, if I would have done as well as this, but it seems obvious that the first headline is that a hospital, that there has been a explosion at a hospital or near a hospital and that many people were killed and not to go with the allegation of, even if you were to engage in moral equivalency and or uh, the equivalency of legitimacy, which I don't think is warranted here. They didn't even state it as an allegation. They stated it as a fact. Right. So So the first place that you would go is, a thing happened, right? Not who did it, a thing happened. And you would wait. That it, That's what it would mean to apply rigor and care and reporting what we know as we know it. And I do understand that it's hard to report. The fog of war is a real thing and all of that stuff. But again, this one just lines up with the bias for conflict and the bias against Israel so clearly that more than just it's complicated and passive voice headlines seems to be in order here. The next story I thought was really worth talking about because 
It's from the New York Times, but a really excellent story, I thought. Headline is, warning of grave errors, powerful donors push universities on Hamas. Um, I thought this was a great story because this is a real story about something that is actually happening and quite well sourced uh, with a lot of donors going on the record, including Ken Griffin, the multi-billionaire CEO of Citadel, who recently gave $300 million to Harvard University and and several others. But for the first time in a long time, I think the, the things happening on campus, these statements being issued by uh, Palestinian-friendly groups are, and the university's response to this war is an interesting American sub-story to the major story, which is the war. And this story interviews the donors who are pushing back on the way the schools have conducted themselves, which is issuing equivocal statements on the war and how they're responding to the doxing of students who have issued, in some cases, pro-Hamas statements. And the best quote in this piece, I thought, and this is an interesting trend, the University of Pennsylvania, I think, has been hardest hit. But in this piece, I thought the most interesting part was the interview with Ken Griffin. And the piece says, Mr. Griffin was more categorical. He said the students who signed pro-Palestinian letters, quote, would have been considered adults 100 years ago and should be held responsible for their actions now. Asked if his hedge fund Citadel would hire the head of a student group that signed the Harvard letter, his answer was an unequivocal no. Unforgivable, he said. How do you end up in such a twisted place, Mr. Griffin asked. And I just thought that underscored the renewed attention to the state of our academic institutions and the people running them. And that overall, this was a very interesting story. And I have been, I have been, I would say, heartened, mostly heartened by what I've seen among Democrats, what I've seen across the establishment kind of institutions where the there is I've seen very little tolerance for the kind of equivocating or equivalizing that we talked about before. And I thought that President Biden's decision to link so closely to yoke together Ukraine and Israel, look, that's a very bold that's a very bold stance based on what a minority in the Democratic Party, but a vocal minority in the Democratic Party thinks about this stuff. But a lot of people are are stepping up here, right? A lot of people are stepping up here. And uh, I, I, I find it all pretty noteworthy. My fond hope, though, my fond hope is that universities, corporations, nonprofit groups, everybody will stop having so many damned opinions I mean, just because this is this is where it ends up, right? If you have an opinion about George Floyd, well, then you have to have an opinion about this. And if you have an opinion about that, then you have to have an opinion about Ukraine. And if you have an opinion about Ukraine, you better have an opinion about Israel. Maybe Harvard should just have an opinion about being Harvard. Maybe Harvard, maybe, maybe Bomba Socks should just have an opinion on footwear and not feel the need to weigh into every issue that comes along to do their job and let politics take care of politics and let them be themselves. 
I totally agree with you on that. And I think I think that will be the takeaway for primary and secondary schools and institutes of higher education in this country that are now realizing they've gotten themselves in a bind when it costs them nothing to speak out on Black Lives Matter, to speak out on Russia, Ukraine. They were issuing statements to their community. Now, on this issue, when it is controversial to say something and it costs them something, first of all, they've set a precedent that's gotten them in a real bind and it costs them something. And there are going to be more of these. And I do think the result will be for them to think about going back to first principles, which is what is our job here? Job is to educate our students, not to be a political party and to make sure that all points of view can be uttered, spoken on our campus. I do think there's going to be some rethinking of that as a result. And I totally share your view. Yeah. And just this is where you need members of boards of directors to say the next time it looks like, ooh, they, this would be a, we'd get a lot of belly scratches if we came out on this issue to say, nope, we're going to have to pass on that one because we don't want to deal with the next one. And that's, that's prudent thinking. And we, we flagged one more piece. There was one, one other good piece this week in the Atlantic by Connor Friedersdorf on what's happening on campuses. And that piece was headlined, um, Students for Pogroms in Israel. And he writes about the students and how this is a wake-up call for the left. And he writes, though many on the left, including many critics of Israel, bear no responsibility for its pro-Hamas faction, newly aware observers cannot help but wonder what flawed ideas informed the violence-endorsing statements. So this episode will rightly cause some who deferred to leftists on social justice to regard their views with less deference and more skepticism. Virtue signaling on campus will change as radical views are seen as less virtuous. New scrutiny will be applied to concepts like decolonization. Academics who oppose othering and dehumanization should be newly attentive to the ways colonizer and oppressor can be misused to justify atrocities. My own skepticism of cancel culture is unchanged. These cancellation or accountability, accountability efforts will unfold as arbitrarily and capriciously as ever with rushes to judgment and a dearth of due process and guilt by association, principled critics of cancel cultures and justices and unintended consequences will continue to object, but with changes in the ideologies most subject to cancel cultures' excesses and attendant chilling effects, I believe we can expect to see some on the left and right swap positions on the subject while deflecting, deflecting charges of hypocrisy. A very interesting piece. I'm 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 fascinated by the existence of these groups, and uh, of all, uh, my favorite is Swarthmore Students for Justice in Palestine. Oh man, oh you, de- it's 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 beyond parody. It's just. I mean, can you blame parody. the employers for wanting to know their names and perhaps wanting to avoid them? Swarthmore Students for Justice in Palestine. Just keeping it real on the front lines, folks. Yeah. Just keeping it real on the front lines. Okay, so relatedly, President Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. delivered an Oval Office address on this very matter. We're recording this on Friday, and he did it Thursday night. Now, this is a very hard place, a very, a very hard platform. When you and I have both seen presidents really fail at an Oval Office address, Donald Trump, Donald Trump, remember the thing with his cufflinks and the and the and the f bomb and the he had a hot mess of an Oval Office address, or Barack Obama did the one 
after the oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico that was just a just a it was a, it was an oil spill itself. But if they're good, they can be really good, right? Ronald Reagan, George W. Bush, Bill Clinton, others have used the Oval Office address. And here's the media angle for me. Primetime roadblock coverage, right? We have seen, and I can't remember, I don't know what the scorecard is. If any listener knows it, please send it. But presidents haven't always gotten it when they want it, when they've wanted it, right? Because what you're saying to the networks is, hey, you're gonna, I want you to forego Dancing with the Stars tonight so that you can put me on so that I can deliver this message. So you go to the networks, you ask for this, and then you do it, and it's this, it's this big platform, and you can really face plant. And, you know, you have to grade Biden on a curve because he's so bad on TV generally, but he did it, right? Do you agree? Do you think, I, I think Biden managed, managed an effective speech for somebody who, I, I, I forget who it was said that he, when he finishes his speech, he looks like a Roomba looking oh for my the gosh. docking station. Wait, it's really funny that you said that hmm. because I just watched, it was a stand-up comic yeah. who said that, and I just watched this. Let's play that clip. Anytime I watch Biden do anything, I get the same feeling as like, you ever go to a friend's house and they have like a 16-year-old dog and it walks in the room? <laughs> and you gotta do that whole like, oh, hey, there he is. <laughs> Just look at him, he's looking great. <laughs> My favorite thing about Biden is, any anytime Biden finishes a speech, he transforms into a Roomba. Just That was so funny. All right. I did not watch the Biden speech because I was ill. Um, It was fine. If you'll take my word for it. I will take your word for it. It was good. He was lucid and lucidity is a low bar, but he was he was lucid and he made a very forceful case. And it was funny as he was giving the speech. I thought, who does this remind me of? And then I remembered. George W. Bush, short sentences, forceful message, American exceptionalism, all of that stuff. And the most powerful part, the, the, the way that Oval Office addresses work and what Ronald Reagan proved is if you can go over the heads of the media and go directly to the electorate and get a bunch of people to watch, that, that can work strongly in your favor. So, Eliana Johnson, how, how else does Joe Biden try to circumvent the mainstream press? Well, the Washington Post informed us this week, Biden gives fewer press interviews, but but he woos more influencers. And this piece, he's big with the influencer community. The White House says its media strategy reflects American habits. Critics say the president is minimizing tough questions. And the Post reports, Biden has held fewer news conferences than his predecessors, duh, given fewer interviews to major news organizations, duh. And at the same time, the White House is contacting an array of online influencers, social media personalities, TikTok stars, and other non-traditional figures to spread its message, creating an alternative communication network that's different from previous presidencies. Who knew, Chris? (laughs) He's I actually is out there taking tough questions. He's talking with, to the people. He's with the influencers. He's with the influencers. I think he needs to do an interview with the onion as Uncle Joe in a tank top next to his Trans Am. That's the next logical step after this. Chris, when I saw this next story, I thought, 
Roger Ailes is rolling over in his grave. A little let me let me offer you a little news before we okay. before we dive in. Breaking you're get if you're getting your breaking news a day late from Inkstained Wretches, you're my kind of wretch. But breaking is that House Republicans have just voted in conference to drop Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan as their designee to be Speaker of the House. So Jim Jordan today lost a third time in his bid to get a majority of the House to back him to be Speaker, and the it went the the margin got wider each time, and then they went behind closed doors. Republicans went behind closed doors, and they voted him off the island. So now he has been repudiated uh, by his own conference. So that's that's just just so folks know where we are in in the timeline. By by this point, by the time people listen to this, I assume Alf from Melmac will be the speaker. They will they will simply make one of Donald Trump, maybe a MAGA hat will be speaker. I don't know who will be speaker or speaker designee by the time you listen to this, but that's where we are right now. Well, hardest hit by that Jim Jordan loss is Sean Hannity, because as I was saying before, Roger Ailes would be rolling over in his grave as several sources reporting that Hannity's producer was emailing congressional offices with the following. Sources tell Hannity that Representative XXXX is not supporting Rep. Jordan for speaker. Can you please let me know if this is accurate? And this is an email from Stephanie on the Hannity staff. If true, Hannity would like to know why during a war breaking out between Israel and Hamas with the war in Ukraine, with the wide open borders and with a budget that's unfinished, why would Rep. XXXX be against Jim Jordan for speaker? Why? Please let us know when Rep. XXX plans on opening the People's House so work can be done. Lastly, are there any conditions Rep. XXX will work with Democrats on the process of electing a new speaker? So just fair questions, just asking fair, and right down the middle, just playing it down the middle. Was he asking folks? I, I don't think he was asking folks this about whether they were going to support Scalise. You think, are, are you suggesting that Jim Jordan, who, and I saw the total, but it was more than 500 times that Jim Jordan in recent years has appeared on Fox News. Are you suggesting Eliana Johnson, that there is some favoritism take that there's some favoritism taking place on Jordan's behalf by Fox News. I don't know. I don't know. Well, Chris, did you not? This is in our accountability <laughs> segment. Did had you not predicted Jordan last week? What did I predict? I if I was wrong, I'd denounce it. Did you just did you just predict Jordan would be the pick out of conference, which was correct, or did you predict he was going to make it to speaker? I doubt, I don't know what, well, I'm sure I was right. I think that's where I'm going to leave it is that whatever I said, I'm sure it was right. And if it was okay. wrong, the tape was garbled, but here, and then let's listen here to Brian. Let's, let's listen to Brian Kilmeade has a hot mic moment on this matter. Jordan. Auchincloss. Jeffries. Jeffries. Babin, Jordan, Bacon, McCarthy, I have to say, Chris, I feel like this is something that would happen to me. I, I'm just waiting for the day that I get caught on a hot mic. Well, this so, mic, our mic's always hot. That's right. I so. know. 
you know, I'm a, I feel bad for Kilmeade on that one, but but yeah. But it but no, I feel bad for him too. But the point is, you know, I was thinking about this in regard to Ronnie D. And Fox went all in on Ron DeSantis, right? It was gonna it was gonna push Ron DeSantis forward and the New York Post and the Wall Street Journal were on board and it was gonna be this huge blitz for Ron DeSantis. And it not only did nothing, it probably hurt DeSantis, right? It probably cost him some credibility with folks who are media skeptical. And why do you think it hurt DeSantis? So there are lots of Republicans who don't like Fox. And there are lots of Republicans who don't like Fox because they think Fox is too MAGA. And then there's lots of, and there's an even larger number of people who think that Fox is not MAGA enough. I know because they are the people, they're the people who got me fired from Fox. There's a lot of people who hate Fox because they think that Fox is a tool of the establishment. And when Fox went all in on DeSantis, I think that probably hurt his credibility with the hardcore anti-establishment Republicans. But whatever it did, it certainly, it, it, if it helped him, it wasn't enough. And I, I think the belief, and you know, we're picking on Fox here because Hannity and Kilmeade got caught doing it, but I think at whether it's any cable network, certainly print journalists, the belief in your own, there's, there's a place where you and your critics agree, and it's on how powerful you are. And it's a flattering, it's, it's, a, it's a flattering untruth to those, of, the, to those of us in the media to say, gosh, they, I have all this power. I, I'm, I'm moving people to my will. I'm doing all of this stuff. So it's not, you're, you're never as powerful as you think you are, and you're never as powerful as your critics think you are. And the odyssey that Fox has helped, and the, all of the right-wing press, has helped House Republicans go down, going back to John Boehner, right? And before, but going back to John Boehner at least, this procedural vote, this, the, this is a process story, right? This is not a policy story. This is a process story. And the degree to which the media and it's not just the right wing media, every, the, all of the political media loves this story. It's personality driven. It's chaotic. It's historic. And there's vote after vote after vote. And it's like, what's is it the gold, the silver bachelor, the golden bachelor? Is it the golden? It's, so it's like the golden bachelor. Come on, get with it. It's like the golden bachelor with fewer, not none, but fewer STD checks. And the idea is basically who will get voted off the island next? So everybody loves it because it's good copy and it's content. But the, you can see the, the judgment error at Fox in getting so heavily involved in pushing Jim Jordan, just as it was with pushing Ron DeSantis. You're not as good at it as you think you are. You hurt your credibility as you do it. Just, just watch. Just watch. Just watch. That's all you have to do is just watch. I agree. It, it undermines their credibility. There was a reason that that Ailes held them back from doing that. Yeah, that, it, it, that's exact. That's exactly right. Roger Ailes, for his many, many, many characterological deficiencies, knew that power once exercised is lessened. Right, and Fox was more powerful 
when it was perceived to be influencing things rather than explicitly trying to influence things. Should we talk debates? Well, of course we should talk debates because it's almost time for another debate. We are almost at the third debate. And the RNC announced that it will be NBC, Mm -hmm. Salem Radio Network, and Rumble. What's Rumble? What? What's Rumble? That's the uh, that's the right wing YouTube. Is that right? Yes. yes. Social media company. And I believe they partnered with Fox News on the first on the first debate. And here we have CNN's obnoxious coverage characterizing Salem Radio Network and Rumble as right wing media companies that have a history peddling and profiting off extremist rhetoric. When I, I asked assume, NB- I, I assume sorry to interrupt, but I assume that. The Salem personality will be Hugh Hewitt. Is that correct? That is who it will be. Yeah. Okay. So, and he's done these before. He has done these before. When I asked NBC News on Monday if the network was actually comfortable collaborating on the third GOP debate with Salem and Rumble, given each company's history, a spokesperson declined comment. Give me a break. But I, I, I don't know who NBC is going to have anchoring. Do, do you know who NBC will have at the desk? I assume it will be Lester Holt and Kristen Welker, but uh, that's my that's my guess. So this does point to the a a pressure point for NBC. I'm sure that there are people inside NBC News who don't like this and don't wouldn't like them doing a Republican debate under any circumstances, but certainly don't like them doing a Republican debate partnered with Salem. And we get back to the point of what we've talked about many times before. Will they be able to ask questions that are germane to a Republican primary electorate? You know what? I'm sure. Like the way that mainstream covers this is just so asinine. I'm sure there are Republicans who don't like that Salem is partnering with NBC and who have problems with Lester Holt and Kristen Welker. Right. But like that sort of thing doesn't even cross the minds of the mainstream media that like, hey, like you either. Yeah, We have problems with you and your biases and the misinformation that you've spread. But that doesn't even that's not even in the realm of, you know, of of consciousness of Oliver Darcy. Well, I I mean, Oliver Darcy is not. Yes, I mean, quite so. (laughs) Quite, quite so indeed. Okay, Ben Terrace has a piece out today in The Washington Post on the Republican primary. The headline is. The make-believe Republican primary is the race for the GOP nomination a boondoggle, or is this what democracy looks like? And I, I, I hate it, hated it. I I have not read this piece. I hate it. I hate it so much. Okay, uh, okay. And basically, the point of the piece is, LOLZ, Republicans are still actually doing this when everybody knows it's over. And you know what? We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what's going to happen. Is Donald Trump likely to win? Yeah, he's likely to win. I'll give him a four out of five chance of being the Republican nominee. He's a, he's a heavy favorite. But this, is, this sneering at the process and sneering at the people who are running and, and all of this stuff, it's just, it's so arch. It's so snotty. It's so much. And the headline, the make-believe Republican primary it's just 
I, I really let let the process play out. Just let the process play out. Just watch. As I would say to Sean Hannity, just watch. The other thing that it's like this this is different from a normal primary in that you basically have an incumbent president running. Right. So exactly. It is going to be different. Exactly. Um, yes. And, he's and, a heavy favorite. That's what you that's what one would expect. And and if you were covering, so let's let's flip it. Let's say Joe Biden was refusing to debate and you had the sitting governor of Florida, you had a sitting senator, you had his former vice president, you had all those people who were running for president. How would the race be? How, how would we think about the race? Right. We'd say, wow, these are the powerful divisions within the party and what will happen. And we, you would be inclined to cover it like people would cover Pat Buchanan's run against George H.W. Bush or Teddy Kennedy's run against Jimmy Carter in 1980. You know, what does this mean and what's it all about? Instead, the repeated narrative is, look at these losers. Look at these losers who are running and they're LARPing and they're lols, lols, lols. It's really, I just, it's so cynical. Chris, does Yo. that bring us to our... Almost. Oh, no, no, no. no. Almost. We it's... have... You've got to hear me. You've got to hear me. Save your voice so I, I can know, complain. I know. So I can um, complain one more time. Yes. Go ahead. The I don't know what this website is. I guess I should be checking my sources. I don't know what MTN is, and I apologize if MTN is actually a, a website that is for the furry lifestyle or something. But the piece is just reporting on NBC filing a motion to televise. Trump's trial in Washington, D.C., filed their 43-page motion to allow televised coverage. Now, we're already getting quasi-televised coverage of Trump's fraud trial in New York being provided by sideline reporter Donald Trump, who, who comes out of the courtroom to, I believe he compared himself to Perry Mason recently and said that he just destroyed the whole case. And I just, I just want to say... I'm sure that the judge in this case is is a is a loyal listener to Ink Stained Wretches. And I just want to say, don't do it. I'm begging you. Don't put cameras in the courtroom. Please don't put cameras in the courtroom. It will make it worse and it will further degrade people's confidence in the justice system. And we've already been through the OJ trial one time. Let's not let's not do it. Let's not do it twice. We're and we're we're gonna have to watch Georgia's trial. So please spare us, federal court system. Please spare us. Okay. At long last, Chris, we are at our lifestyle section. First story from the Washington Post, how Lunchables ended up on school lunch trays. And, and this could also be facile file as well. Uh, this, yeah. this, this, is, this is a much like uh, Lunchables, a combo platter. And the Washington Post did a deep dive into how school lunchables ended up on school how lunchables ended up on school lunch trays and they're horrified the writer writers this is a three byline story to talk about how lunchables got on the tray and i i'll tell you right now how lunchables got into school lunches because children want to eat them that is how that is how it happens <laughs> And it, it's not a lot more mystifying than that, is that if you gave your children a pile of Ritz crackers 
and some turkey, some turkey loaf that shimmers like a rainbow on an oil slick and a few slices of American cheese on a plate, they would throw it back in your face. But if you give it to them as a Lunchable, somehow it becomes edible. I don't know the sorcery that the Kraft Corporation uses to make this happen, but they have, they have over the past 20 years succeeded in making Lunchable something that children want to eat. And Chris, what? Oh, I was going to say, it's not just children who want to eat them. Oh, well, yes, we have other evidence. Further evidence, which is that the former Attorney General Bill Barr was spotted at the airport eating a Lunchable. Eat on the phone like a businessman, but also stacking up some Lunchables on his knee. And I just want to say, I know that adorable is the wrong word to use for the former Attorney General of the United States, but he looks he looks like a raccoon. He looks like a little raccoon who is putting washing his food in the stream. I loved it. It's 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 really good. Do you eat Lunchables? No, I'm not a fan. No, me neither. But I would imagine. I I don't know. Did you pack your lunch to school or did you buy no. lunch at school? You you purchased lunch at your yes. public high school. And how was the lunch? The lunch was good. Lunch was good. Never had an issue. Never had an issue. Nope. All right. There you go. Would nope, you if and, so you would have been bummed if they would have swapped those out for lunchables. For sure. And I would never have wanted to deal with bringing my lunch. The, what about we you? Were, we were very excited at the Lindsley School in Wheeling, West Virginia, when they got the deli line, which was in, in addition to getting the hot lunch, which was mostly good, sometimes less good, but that they had the deli line so that you could go up and have a deli sandwich made for you. And that is the people in New York are, are wincing. They don't know why that what was served there was called deli because the distance between that Rubbermaid container at in a school cafetorium in West Virginia and a delicatessen was very far indeed. But we were grateful to have it. And we were also grateful that we could have as much ranch dressing as we wanted because ranch will do a lot of oh heavy gosh, lifting. Oh that's so gross. Lot, ranch will do a lot of heavy lifting when you have dubious food options. That is so gross. Oh, yuck. Okay. And <laughs> but what about, in our what about Jada Pinkett Smith? Yes. Speaking of gross. Jada Pinkett, Pinkett's strategic oversharing has the media promoting her memoir, Hook, Line, and Sinker. Reports Mediaite, Jada Pinkett Smith has written a memoir entitled Worthy, and with that comes a book tour, a media blitz that teases what's inside the book so people will buy the book. That's how that works. But what people are pointing out about Pinkett's media hits is how much she's sharing about her private life, or rather oversharing. This isn't exactly a shocker coming from Pinkett, who created and hosted the Red Table Talk series where she opened up about many aspects of her own inner workings, from living with alopecia to her non-traditional marriage to Will Smith. Now, with the book hitting shelves, she's revealing even more, and some believe it's simply too much, even her own kids. A few more believe it could be a sign of something more concerning, like something is off with Pinkett Smith. And this goes into how oversharing is a symptom of a broader personality disorder or narcissism. Well, on and on and on. If we if we start if we start forbidding Hollywood celebrities f from doing interviews for narcissism, 
what will they put on entertainment tonight? I mean, the, the, the whole industry will shut down if narcissism becomes a problem. And I have no desire to read all of her oversharing. It, but it is, it is, and we saw this with Kanye West, and we see it with, we saw it with, I was going to say Lindsay Lohan, and I guess that's kind of true, but with Britney Spears, the meltdowns, psychological problems, emotional distress, and un general unwellness of celebrities is profit, right? It's content. And I don't know what's going on with Will and Jada Smith and their kids. It seems like a very messed up situation. The whole thing seems like a very messed up situation. I don't know, and I don't care. That's their business. But it just points to the ravenous maw of celebrity coverage, and all, and it's all-consuming. And, you know, I, when I'm telling people about McDonald's, you know, you've heard my McDonald's analogy. You can, some, some food is, uh, some news is, nourishing and good for you. Some is Lunchables, which is, it sort of meets the requirements. And then some of it's trash. You can have, you can eat trash, but you just have to know it's trash. And we have so many people gorging themselves on really trashy celebrity content. And when you see something like the destruction of the Smith family playing out in slow motion, you know, I don't, I don't mean to be a scold, but if you're consuming it, you're fueling it, right? They're doing it for you. It's happening for you. Well, I did like this line in the news article that says, as someone with zero mental health expertise, but many, many years in the media, I can't fault her for this. I don't think her mental health is a concern, at least not for us. I'd also have to think if Pinkett had been diagnosed with something, she absolutely would have told us about it. <laughs> it's pretty good. It's pretty good. Chris, that brings us to our obsessions of the week, where we break down the stories we can't get out of our heads. And Chris, mine has many different aspects, but it is the media's broad search for alternative victims other than the Israelis in this. Essentially, so much of the media coverage, starting the day after October 7th has been about the humanitarian impact of Israel's retaliation in Gaza. Um, but the American media has found other ways to cover this in this, you know, victim shifting prism that that is predictable, but still astonishing. And I wanted to highlight several pieces in that vein the first was a Washington Post piece with the headline, it's becoming too impossible to report from Gaza, as if normally it's quite easy to report from war zones, but and the real victims here are, are the media. And it blames Israel for this challenge. The flow of information in war zones is often halting and unpredictable, but given the scale of Israel's assault, which UN experts have warned amounts to collective punishment in violation of international law. Journalists are facing unprecedented challenges in, share, in obtaining and sharing information. The next story was a New York Times story about a Palestinian restaurant in New York that was flooded with negative reviews. And the Times highlights this restaurant as a victim of this broader conflict. And I'll read a little bit from that. 
Many Palestinians and their supporters have expressed frustration over what they see as a double standard, an outpouring of support for Israel, while the decades-long suffering of Palestinians has been largely ignored by much of the non-Muslim world. Zain Ramawi, 69, a Palestinian immigrant in Bay Ridge who was involved with various Arab-American civic organizations, said that it was only a matter of time before Palestinians lashed out. If you put the cat in a corner and start hitting the cat, what will happen, said Mr. Ramawi. This is what happened in Gaza. And it just struck me reading that. I mean, I don't remember a rash of coverage of articles about discrimination against Russians when Russia attacked Ukraine and due to Ukraine's counteroffensive. I just don't remember this sort of coverage from any other conflict. Now, we're and again, we're seeing this sort of coverage inside the Biden administration and two, pe- two pieces highlighted this. And this is even more absurd. The Huffington Post and Politico's West Wing playbook had this from Huffington Post on thin ice. Some Biden administration staffers feel stifled discussing horrors in Gaza. And the piece in the piece, the reporters say the period since the Hamas attack represents, quote, the first time in the administration that there was a real culture of silence, one official said, feels like post 9-11, where you feel like your thoughts are being policed and you're really afraid of being seen as anti-American or an anti-Semite. I mean, shouldn't that be a fear all the time? Really? If, well, it, it, the the echoes to 9-11, it's so funny that the this interviewee compared it to 9-11 because that's what it feels like it's it, on a smaller scale. Lots of there was lots of concern, some of it right, but most of it overblown about hate crimes against Muslims in the wake of 9-11. And we do know, by the way, that we've seen a substantial increase in anti-Semitic misdeeds of various degrees in recent years. But the just sort of the core assumption that's baked into this kind of reporting and this kind of thinking that people are going to come after Muslims. Now, we have the very sad story of an obviously deranged man in Illinois who is said to have murdered a little boy, a Muslim little boy who was uh, a tenant in a rental property that he owned. So I'm not saying that nothing happens, but this search for a systemic, a systemic problem is definitely reminiscent of a lot of the response to 9-11. The, the other absurd part of the government servant you know, victims in this is that the Biden administration has articulated a policy. If you want to be in government and walk around spouting your views that are at odds with the stated policy of the administration, yes, that's going to get awkward. That's going to be weird. That's not normal. You know, you, 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 like in my job, I don't walk around saying how I disagree with my boss all the time. That will get you in trouble. And, and finally, a West Wing playbook ran a piece this week with a subject line, Arab staff feel White House neglect, noting that in the aftermath of Hamas's bloody attack on Israel, senior White House officials quickly began checking in on Jewish staffers to make sure they were doing okay. People dropped off lunch for their Jewish colleagues, made calls and sent texts to those who were trying to process the death of over a thousand people in Israel. But as the conflict expanded with Israel launching airstrikes on Gaza and a potential ground invasion living, some Muslim, Arab, and Palestinian Americans who work in the Biden administration are feeling like their grief is not being taken into similar consideration. Wow. Okay. Wow. You brought soup for my, for your, for our Jewish friend 
but you haven't said anything to me about Israel's attacks on Because, Gaza. you know, and this is what we talked about at the top about the bombing, because both sides are the same. It's the same. Both have equal claims. They're both equally trustworthy. They're both equally victims. We all deserve soup. That is the approach to all of this. We all deserve soup. Wow. That's that's quite a little vignette. All right. My obsession, as it has been many times before, is on how much I hate fact-checking. Not fact-checking inside organizations. We should fact-check. We certainly, certainly should. We do it at the dispatch. I know you do it at the Free Beacon. We do it at News Nation. Checking the facts in a story is part of reporting and it's part of editing. And there should be more of it inside organizations. But much like your obsession, mine twigs off of the the front page. And in this, a a insightful pony shared this with me, which was Sam Bowman, who I believe to be a libertarianish Briton, based on what I can come up with from looking at his Twitter account, chronicled the failure of something called BBC Verify. And BBC Verify was launched, it looks like this year, in which it was going to bring fact-checking out in the open and be transparent and keep up with these real things and, and instill confidence in the media. Here's the line. We've brought together forensic journalists and expert talent from across the BBC, including our analysis editor, Ross Atkins, and disinformation correspondent, Mariana Spring, and their teams. In all, BBC Verify comprises about 60 journalists who will form a highly specialized operation with a range of forensic investigative skills and open source intelligence capabilities at their fingertips. They'll be fact-checking, verifying video, countering dis disinformation, analyzing data, and crucially explaining complex stories in pursuit of the truth. Well, how'd they do with the hospital bombing? Non-super. They did non-super. And as this young Briton says, the BBC, it, so the first time that BBC Verify could have been really useful, the BBC immediately jumped to conclusions based on Hamas statements, including sending out a worldwide push notification, blaming Israel to tens of millions of people. And these now, and these now seem wrong. Do I have that right? He asks. And it's just reporting. It's not fact, fact checking isn't different from reporting. This was bad reporting. And when institutions like the BBC claim that they're fighting disinformation and then spread disinformation, I, I would tend to think that would undercut consumer confidence in the media. And relatedly, also coincidentally from Britain, this is a story in The Guardian about the novelist Ian McEwen talking about sensitivity readers who have been hired to look for offensive material in manuscripts. And he, so here's the quote, 75 year old believes that uh, support for sensitivity readers comes largely from very young people who are living in societies that are relatively free, but not a view that all young people have. He describes sensitivity reading as a weird thing that happens in some universities, which we get from the United States. Sorry about that. It is a, a helpful look to me. And I see the idea of the anti-disinformation industry. Uh, and sensitivity, the idea of sensitivity readers pouring through books, looking for passages that might be upsetting to people. We have to do this as citizens. We have, this is a, a 
inside job. This is a ground up thing. We have to be able to read the book and decide what we're offended by and what we're not offended by. We have to watch the news and determine whether we find it to be credible or not credible. The idea that there are external people that can come in and tell us what to think, tell us how to feel, tell us how to do whatever. This is an, a theme that has come through for me today. The arrogance of the media, of, of people in the news media, or in this case, the, the world of books, believing so much in their own powers, even as they fail in real time to deliver on the promise that they, they, they seek to serve with those powers. So that's a big boo. Chris, that brings us to my favorite time of the week, which is reader mail. And our first note is from Max Marshall in Charleston, South Carolina. And he writes, Dear Eliana and Chris, I'll just leave this here. And he links, sends a link to a Washington Post piece in the Ask a Doctor column. Whoa. Yeah. Using toilet paper is grosser than you think. Here's a better idea. What? And the doctor recommends bidets. If you're okay, writing get down with if, that. If you're writing the Washington Post because you don't know how to wipe your backside, you've got bigger problems is all okay. I can say. Well, let's read from this. The doctor says bidets are not just better for your wallet. Think of how much toilet paper your family breezes through each month, but they're better for the environment too. This was meant for you, Chris. Oh my God. Um, while you do waste one eighth of a gallon of water per use with a bidet, your waste from toilet paper plummets. It takes about 1.5 pounds of wood and six gallons of water, blah, 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 blah. Anyhow, I like bidets. I, I'm, I'm not going to have a bidet installed. But in a, in a, in a surprise <laughs> update, I will not be having it. I've, I've got no beef with the French people, who, anybody who wants to, but I, that, that's, that's going to be a no from me, dog. Okay. We promised Paul R. in Idaho that we would get to his note this week. And Paul says he's a proud ink-stained wretch, and he writes, Dearest ink-stained wretches, I love your podcast. I like the description in your last episode by another listener about seeing how the sausage of media is made. Knowing the food chain of your diet, of your media diet is as important as knowing the food chain of your real diet. However, I have some criticism of your position on mis- and disinformation. Oh. As much as I share your concerns about its phenomenon, what we know about the movement around this subject has changed a lot in the last year. I implore you to give it a substantive look if you haven't already. The reporting done earlier this year on this subject by Lee Fong, Matt Taibbi, Michael Schellenberger, Jacob Siegel, Barry Weiss, and a number of other independent reporters really changed my perspective. It was also a fascinating media story because what I was reading in the source material and what I ended up reading in the reporting about the story by the legacy press ended up being wildly different. I know full well that those authors have their contentions that put them at odds with the establishment. But though I don't agree with all their opinions, what they reported on was newsworthy in its own right. Jumping forward, he says, I personally believe that the answer to wrong speech is just more correct speech and careful, deliberate, logical reasoning. If we go down the road of the Ministry of Truth, I think we're in for some really, some truly Orwellian results. The examples I used here barely scratch the surface of mis, dis, mal, information policing mishaps that have come out in the last year. I implore you, please look into some of the independent reportings on this. I would love to talk to you about it. And my thought on that was, 
I'm not sure where Paul thought our disagreement was because I wholeheartedly agree with everything. Well, I was going to say, there. I was going to say, Paul, you are in luck because that's what I just delivered a, a three minute rant on. So I think, I think, Paul, we are in accord. Chris, that brings us to our favorite items of the week, where I am forced to say something nice, but you, as always, will lead by example. Well, I know it's not cool to love America these days, but I do. And you know who else loves America? A lot of, a lot of cool people around the world. So I bring you the story of the German couple that came to the United States to get married at a McDonald's. And Mike and Kathy Halla and their 23 guests made an unexpected pit stop at their all-time favorite restaurant in McDonald's in small-town Michigan. The couple rolled through the drive-thru in a red Mustang. Could have done better on the car, but okay. With the establishment's jingle, I'm loving it, plastered across the doors and its distinctive golden orchards emblazoned on the hood. I think when someone asks me about my favorite part of the wedding, one of the first things that will come up is McDonald's. Kathy told the Detroit Free Press, the experience we had there was so unique and special. Next time I'm at McDonald's, I will have these memories with me. And there is a photograph of the couple, her making a, him making a French fry mustache under her nose. And I would just say, take that, hippies. Take that, hippies. Chris, my favorite item this week was a first-person essay that we published in the Free Beacon by a reporter we have based in Tel Aviv who wrote about his, he is American. And of course, Americans, the State Department is offering to evacuate Americans from Israel, but he wrote about his decision to stay put in Israel. And the, the headline is, I'm an American and I'm staying in Israel with my young family. And I thought it was moving and wonderful and I recommend it to everybody. Yay. Look, we both have sincere loving favorites. That's how I like it. I highly recommend it. That is all the time we have left for the news about the news. If you have a story you want us to talk about, email us at wretches at nebulouspodcast.com and sign up for our newsletter at nebulouspodcast.com. This has been Ink Stained Wretches from Nebulous Media, produced by Colin Chicola. Find Do us it. on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Wretches. Wretches.